So my name is Jesper Kallister, I'm Head of Philosophy, and I'd just like to welcome you all to this year's Nature of Knowledge lecture. Um, we come now to the end of what has been a, a full and exciting program of events celebrating the uh, tercentenary of the birth of the philosopher and historian David Hume. So Hume, as, as you'll know, was born in Edinburgh in uh, 1711 and a student of this university from uh, 1723. Um, in commemoration of this most influential thinker of the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, we have this year enjoyed uh, many exhibitions, conferences, a birthday party, theater productions, academic lectures, uh, and uh, also, in fact, uh, especially brewed David Hume beer. Um, I believe the beer was called Enlightenment, but I'm not quite sure in what, what way you were enlightened by that. Um, um, uh, through all these events, we have entered into dialogue with uh, David Hume on all aspects of his thought. Uh, tonight's lecture concerns, in fact, a much earlier dialogue, namely that between uh, Hume and his contemporary, uh, Immanuel Kant, um, uh, who is arguably the most influential philosopher of the German Enlightenment. Kant famously remarked that his engagement with Hume's work had, and I quote, awoken him from his dogmatic slumber. So it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce to you Professor Geyer, one of the world's uh, leading Kant scholars. Okay. After receiving his doctorate from Harvard uh, University, Professor Geyer taught at the universities of Pittsburgh, Illinois, Harvard, and Princeton. Um, he's currently Professor of Philosophy and Florence R.C. Murray Professor in the Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, as well as president of the Eastern Division of the American Philosophical Association. Okay, he's the general editor, co-editor of the Cambridge edition of the works of Immanuel Kant. He's the editor and translator of Kant's first and third critiques. And he's also uh, editor of Kant's notes and fragments. Professor Geyer has also authored no less than nine books on Kant and the history of modern philosophy. From his uh, 1979 Kant and the claims of taste to his knowledge, reason, and taste, Kant's response to Hume, published by Princeton University Press in 2008. And tonight, Professor Guy will speak to us on the topic, Hume, Kant, and the passion for reason. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, generous introduction. Does the microphone work? Can everybody hear? Um, it's a great uh, honor and pleasure for me to be here. Uh, it's an honor to be invited to um, deliver the uh, Nature of Knowledge lecture, which I know is a very important lecture in uh, Edinburgh uh, Philosophy's academic year. Uh, it's a great honor to be asked to uh, give what I guess is the concluding uh, lecture in this wonderful uh, series of, of Hume events that you've been having. I wish I could have been here for all of that. Um, uh, and um, since I'm going to talk about uh, the connection between Hume and Kant, it's uh, a great honor for me to do that here in uh, the department of uh, Robert Adamson and um, Richard Walsh and especially uh, the great Norman Kemp Smith. Uh, my incredibly distinguished predecessor as a translator of the Critique of Pure Reason. I had the pleasure of my wife taking 
my picture next to Kemp Smith's uh, portrait up in the philosophy department earlier today. Um, it's also uh, fun to be back here for a talk after, uh, I'm afraid to say, 32 years. Um, that first book, uh, Content and Claims of Taste, uh, appeared in the States at the very end of 1978, but there was a couple of months lag before um, Harvard University Press actually managed to ship copies to the UK. Uh, and um, during that time, I was able to give a talk about that material um, here to the Edinburgh uh, Philosophy Department, which, uh, which I remember um, to this day. So it's nice to be back. Um, if I am uh, so lucky as to live um, as long as my father has and is living, you can wait another 32 years to invite me back. Um, but that's kind of pushing it, so I hope it'll be sooner than that. Okay, uh, down to business. Um, Hume is famous for the assertion that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other reason than to serve and obey them. Uh, meaning by that, that our ends are set entirely by our feelings and that reason merely figures out the means to those ends. Hume is a card-carrying member of the moral sense tradition established by Shaftesbury and Hutchison. Uh, so this is supposed to apply to moral as well as to any other practical re reasoning. Morally permissible or mandatory ends are likewise supposed to be determined solely by feeling, with reason again confined to the role of figuring out the means to realize those ends. Thus Hume says, "'Tis um, impossible that the distinction betwixt moral good and evil can be made by reason. Since that distinction, that is the distinction be between moral good and evil, has an influence upon our actions of which reason alone is incapable. Reason and judgment may indeed be the mediate cause of an action by prompting or directing a passion, he says, but they cannot, he continues, bestow those moral qualities on the actions which are their immediate or primary causes. Meanwhile, Kant is equally famous for the assertions that the ground of moral obligation, quote, must not be sought in the nature of the human being or in the circumstances of the world in which he is placed, but a priori, simply in concepts of pure reason, unquote, from which it is supposed to follow that, quote, an action from duty is to put aside entirely the influence of inclination and with it every object of the will. Hence, there is left for the will nothing that could determine it objectively, except objectively the law and subjectively pure respect for this practical law. And so the maxim of complying with such a law, even if it infringes upon all my inclinations. The contrast, the end of Kant quote. The contrast could hardly uh, be clearer, or it seems that it could hardly be clearer. For Hume, passion alone determines even our moral goals and the role of reason is purely instrumental. While for Kant, reason alone determines the principle of morality and our inclinations or feelings must play no role either in determining what is morally good or motivating us to try to realize that, except perhaps for an obscure feeling, his words of respect for the moral law, which is, however, itself supposed to be a, quote, feeling self-wrought by means of a rational concept and therefore specifically different from all feelings of any other kind. But is the contrast between Hume and Kant as simple and complete as that? I will argue that there's more common ground between them than first appears, and suggest that it is only on the ground that is common between them that we could construct anything approaching a plausible theory of our motivation to be moral. On the one hand, I will argue that while Hume does stick to his theory that our ends are always determined by our passions, 
He also supposes that most of us are ultimately motivated by a passion for calm or tranquility, or a passion for freedom, at least in the negative sense of freedom from domination by importunate desires. Thus, reason may be the slave of the passions, but on Hume's account, we also have a fundamental passion to be reasonable. On the other hand, I will argue that for Kant, the ultimate aim of morality is also freedom, although his understanding of freedom is in several dimensions fuller than Hume's. And I will argue further that Kant's theory of moral motivation, at least at the empirical level, is that we cannot be moral without an original passion for freedom, although that passion must be redirected from our own freedom to the freedom of all without losing all of its force. Thus, both authors ground the content and the possibility of morality in our passion for freedom. Although for Hume, that is equivalent to reasonableness, while for Kant, that passion must be tempered by reason. And once so tempered, Kant himself would not like to call it a passion. Once I've argued this, I'll just add that I myself find it hard to see how the possibility of morality could be grounded on anything other than something very much like a passion for freedom. So first then uh, to Hume. My exposition of Hume's account of the foundation of morality will proceed in three steps. First, I will remind you of Hume's well-known argument for his thesis that reason is and ought, to be, ought only to be the slave of the passions. Next, I will remind you of his equally well-known claim that what appears to be more than merely instrumental reasoning, reason in moral motivation is actually only calm rather than violent passion. But finally, I will turn from Hume's treatise, where these two theses uh, are, have been laid out, to his uh, restatement of his moral theory in his second inquiry, uh, the inquiry concerning the principles of morals of 1751, to provide the evidence that he ultimately grounds morality in our underlying passion for calm or tranquility, which we can equate with both reasonableness and a form of freedom. Hume's argument that moral distinctions are not derived from reason is that reason just reports facts and neither has nor generates preferences of its own, and thus is not motivating, while moral principles must be motivating and therefore do not depend on preferences, therefore depend on preferences that do not arise from reason. In summarizing the argument this way, I'm using facts broadly, the term facts I'm using broadly, but that fits with Hume's broad usage of the term reason in his own statement of the argument. While in his famous argument in book one of the treatise and in the first inquiry that our causal beliefs are not founded on reason, Hume had restricted the faculty of reason to the analysis of relations of ideas and thus inferred that all our, our beliefs about existence or matters of fact, including our beliefs about the existence of causal relations must be grounded on something other than reason, namely repeated experience. In his uh, argument about moral principles in books two and three of the treatise, what was previously contrasted with reason, namely experience, is now lumped together with it. Thus Hume argues um, in uh, the name of arguing that moral principles are not uh, grounded in reason, that neither demonstration nor probability, neither knowledge of the abstract relations of our ideas or of those relations of objects of which experience only gives us information, by themselves give us any reason to act. 
we may know that one sum is greater than another, that some object exists, or that some causal, causal relation between objects or states of affairs holds, but none of that would give us any reason to act unless we also have a preference for a larger or smaller amount of something, for the presence or absence of something, or for some alteration that we could affect by exploiting the causal connections that we discovered to obtain in the world. Taking action depends, uh, Hume says, on an aversion or propensity towards some object, or on the prospect of pain or pleasure from it, and such impulses arise not from reason, but are only directed by it. Because, he continues, those emotions extend themselves to the causes and effects of objects as they are pointed out to us by reason and experience, where the latter, that is experience, is actually part of the former, that is reason now being used very broadly. Specifically, reason can tell us whether the objects of our emotions really exist, and whether the means that we have chosen for a designed end are sufficient, given the way the world works. But such knowledge has an influence on our action only to the extent that, uh, that we have desires or aversions, emotions or passions, with regard to the current or possible states of the objects that may affect us and that we can affect. But the passions are not themselves established by reason. And it's on that account that Hume says, with a dramatic flourish that may have offended Francis Hutcheson over in Glasgow, from whom the argument was otherwise borrowed, that tis not contrary to reason to prefer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of my finger, or conversely to choose my total ruin to prevent the least uneasiness of a person otherwise unknown to me. Maybe it was just Hume's unacknowledged borrowing of the arguments that offended Hutcheson, but never mind. Hume then completes his argument in book three of the treatise by taking it for granted that morals are supposed to have an influence on actions, on the actions and affections, from which it follows that they cannot be derived from reason, because reason alone, as we have already proved, can never have any such influence. End of quotation. Just as any action must originate from some emotion or passion arising independently of reason, even if reason's knowledge of relations, existence, and causal connections may direct that impulse most effectively towards its object, so too moral actions, including moral appraisals, must originate in a moral sense or in feelings of, quote, pleasure or pain, which arise from characters and actions of that peculiar kind which makes us praise or condemn, end quote. Feelings of pleasure, for example, that are not functionally different from those in quote, a good composition of music and a bottle of good wine, unquote, although they are phenomenologically distinct from those, and those are phenomenologically distinct from each other. Again, the broadly speaking factual knowledge provided by reason may direct our impulses to action that arise from our moral sentiments, but reason does not originate those impulses. Now, all of this is well known and I've belabored it only to remind you that the conception of reason on which Hume bases his argument about the non-rational foundation of moral principles, although broader than his conception of reason in book one of the treatise, is still uh, very narrow. Now, my next point is also well known. Hume wants to explain why, in spite of the argument that he has just presented, the belief that morality is founded in reason has been so persistent. His answer is that people have been taken in by the fact that reasoning and experiencing moral sentiments do not feel very different. 
for reason generally, quote, exerts itself without producing any sensible emotion, he says, and the moral sentiments, including both specific ones such as benevolence and resentment, the love of life and kindness to children, as well as the, quote, general appetite to good and aversion to evil considered merely, merely as such, are also typically calm and cause no disorder in the soul, so the latter are very readily taken for the determinations of reason and are supposed to proceed from the same faculty which judges of truth and falsehood, end of quote. That is, reasoning is calm, moral sentiments are generally calm, and so we mistake the latter for the former, although apparently not vice versa. But the main point that I want to make is that Hume is not offering simply an error theory. For in the end, he does not rest with the claim that we merely confuse the calmness of moral sentiments with the calmness of reason. He rather argues, substantively, that among our preferences, perhaps our highest preference, certainly his highest preference, is a preference for tranquility or calm. If passions were always violent, it would be odd to say that we have a passion for calm. But since Hume has just maintained that we have calm as well as violent passions, he can coherently claim that we have a calm passion for calm. Since calm or tranquility can be understood as freedom from the demands of importunate desire, we can say that according to Hume, we have a calm passion for freedom, at least in the negative sense of freedom from importunate desire. And because calm passion phenomenologically mimics reason, it can even seem to us that we have reason to desire freedom. Hume argues briefly in the treatise that our moral sentiments, as feelings of pleasure, which, quote, arise from the contemplation and view of particular qualities or characters, unquote, are triggered in the first instance by qualities immediately agreeable to others and those immediately agreeable to the person himself, end of quote. And then um, they're triggered derivatively by qualities that either allow people to, quote, perform their part in society or render them serviceable to themselves, unquote. That is, qualities that are means to being either agreeable to oneself to others or to oneself. This dis distinction, which he gives in just one paragraph in the treatise, is the basis for a more extensive discussion in the uh, inquiry concerning the principles of morals of social qualities, that is, qualities useful to others, qualities useful to ourselves, qualities immediately agreeable to ourselves, and qualities useful to others. I messed that up. There should be a qualities agreeable to others in there. Qualities agreeable to ourselves, agreeable to others, useful to ourselves, useful to others. Qualities such as discretion, industry, frugality, and strength of mind, although Hume classifies them as qualities useful to ourselves, obviously allow us to be useful to others as well. While qualities such as honesty, fidelity, and truth, by which he means truthfulness, are more overtly other regarding. But collectively, all these qualities allow us to be effective in our attempts to be pleasing or agreeable either to ourselves or others. They are thus the sorts of qualities that reason can recommend to us, but only as effective in, uh, means to the goals of being agreeable to ourselves and others, which are not set by reason. 
Qualities immediately agreeable to others include such things as politeness, wit, modesty, and decency, which are simply things that we enjoy in our intercourse with others. Qualities immediately agreeable to ourselves include cheerfulness, dignity, and courage, although the first two of these are obviously agreeable to others as well, and the last might seem at least as useful as immediately agreeable to others uh, as well as ourselves. So I guess we should say that his fourfold distinction of qualities agreeable to self, useful to self, agreeable to others, and useful to others does not line up one to one with sort of ground level qualities. Qualities like um, cheerfulness, for example, can be agreeable both to oneself and to others. So individual merit, uh, virtues might be categorized under more than one of his categories, just to keep things straight or confusing. Um, okay, even though Hume makes no attempt to reduce all agreeable qualities or, or, or even all qualities agreeable to oneself to a single one, tranquility seems to have a special place among all those qualities, as not only the most agreeable to oneself, but also the most important condition for being in other ways agreeable and useful to oneself and others. Hume writes, this is a somewhat long quote, of the same class of virtues with courage is that undisturbed philosophical tranquility, superior to pain, sorrow, anxiety, and each assault of adverse fortune. Conscious of his own virtue, say the philosophers, the sage elevates himself above every accident of life and securely placed in the temple of wisdom, looks down on inferior mortals, engaged in pursuit of honors, riches, reputation, and every frivolous enjoyment. And the nearer we can approach in practice to this sublime tranquility and indifference, for we must distinguish it from a stupid insensibility, the more secure enjoyment shall we attain within ourselves, and the more greatness of mind shall we discover to the world." End of quote. So tranquility consists in freedom from or superiority to non-object-directed passions, such as pain and sorrow, but also in freedom from object-directed passions for such things as pursuit of honors and riches. Since the undue influence of passions of the former or latter sort could interfere with our effective pursuit of other self or other regarding goals, tranquility is necessary for the effective pursuit of such goals. But since Hume has classified it as a quality immediately agreeable to oneself, it must also be something that we immediately enjoy and are motivated to achieve for its own sake. And indeed, it seems to be something that the wise person is motivated to place at the top of her list of goals as both in some sense the greatest of, greatest of pleasures, perhaps the most enduring of pleasures, as well as the most important condition for effectively achieving other aims. But since Hume has argued that we can make nothing an end without having feeling, emotion, or passion for it, we must have a passion for tranquility. Of course, that must be a calm passion, since a violent passion for tranquility would be incompatible with tranquility. So even though Hume does not want to found all of morality on a single impulse, a calm passion for tranquility seems to be primus inter pares among the sentiments on which morality is founded. And since calm feels like reason to us, the, to this extent, foundational compassion for tranquility as freedom from domination by all our other passions seems like a passion for reason as well as a passion for freedom. Well, so much for Hume. 
we will now see that although Kant's conception of the relation between passion and reason, especially when he is being his most abstract, seems like the diametrical opposite of Hume's, in fact, Kant also recognizes the necessary role of something like a passion for freedom, at least when he describes the empirical character, uh, to borrow one of his own terms of moral motivation. Um, just before I turn to Kant, perhaps two quick asides about Hume. Um, first of all, I should mention, which I'm sure will be obvious to many of you, that uh, in Hume's characterization of and preference for, the, for tranquility, um, there's nothing profoundly original. You, of course, could open up virtually any Epicurean or Stoic treatise and find something similar. Uh, and, uh, of course, Hume, like everyone else, was a great admirer of uh, ancient authors of both of those schools. Um, the second point is, for those of you who've had the good fortune to see the Tree of Knowledge uh, play that I saw last night, or who will be, uh, have the good fortune to see that in the remainder of its run, um, if the characterization of Hume presented in that play is anything uh, close to uh, accurate, you'll realize that, of course, Hume did not always himself um, succeed in achieving the virtue of tranquility or compassion. But then again, you know, no matter how people define virtue, they usually don't always succeed in fully achieving it. No, never mind about that. Okay, so now we turn to Kant. Um, in the first section of his uh, 1785 uh, booklet, The Groundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals, Kant notoriously appears to argue that only actions performed without any inclination have moral worth. This is just a heuristic device to demonstrate that the fundamental principle of morality can make no reference to inclination. In the third section of the groundwork, and equally notoriously, Kant seems to argue that the determination of the will by pure reason at what he conceives of at the noumenal level is the ground of moral action at the phenomenal level, which is all that most of us, and including Hume, ever knew anything about. But whether or not this bit of metaphysics remained important to him, there can be no question that in his final works, Kant described the empirical etiology of moral action as consisting in the refinement of our original passion for our own freedom by the exercise of reason. It's at this level and or stage of Kant's thought that the similarities as well as the differences with Hume uh, with which I am concerned emerge. As previously noted, in the groundwork, Kant asserts that the principle of moral obligation must be sought a priori simply in concepts of pure reason. And he claims that, only, that the only feeling that could be involved in a morally worthy action is the obscure feeling of respect self-wrought by means of a rational concept. He says there that duty is to be practical, unconditional necessity of an action determined by reason alone, and it must therefore hold for all rational beings, and only because of this be also a law for all human wills." Unquote. Having said this, could Kant allow that we experience such a thing as a passion for reason, a passion for being rational, let alone that such a passion is a necessary condition for our performing our duty and being moral? It would hardly seem that he could, for he defines passion, for which he uses the German word Leidenschaft, but which he equates with the Latin word passio, so passion seems like the right translation. He defines this as the opposite or the obstacle to reason. In, in his textbook on anthropology, 
by which he meant empirical psychology, published at the end of his career in 1798, Kant says that passion is, quote, inclination that can be conquered only with difficulty or not at all by the subject's reason, unquote. In a student uh, notes from a version of his anthropology course given roughly at the same time as the groundwork, he says even more clearly that, quote, all passion is grounded on inclination insofar as it does not merely motivate but dominates. It's a dominating inclination that puts reason out of action, unquote. Well, if passion is incompatible with the operation of reason, it would hardly seem that there could be such a thing as a passion for reason, let alone that our being moral could be grounded on our having a passion for reason. So, passion and reason seem diametrically opposed, and the idea of a passion for reason seems incoherent. But, I argue, when we see that reason itself is not the ultimate end in Kant's moral philosophy, but only an indispensable means to what is the ultimate end, we will see that there's an opening for something like, something like passion in Kant's moral philosophy, after all. For it's freedom that's the ultimate end in Kant's moral philosophy, and the idea of something like a morally indispensable passion for freedom is not entirely incoherent. So, uh, in, uh, first on the question of freedom. In his lectures on moral philosophy, which date back to the middle of the 1770s, um, the years of ferment from which the central ideas of the critique of pure reason also emerged, Kant clearly says that the necessary law of free choice is nothing other than the conformity, uh, conformity of free choice with itself and others. In the introduction to a course on natural right, given at the same time as the composition of the groundwork, Kant adds that rational beings are, quote, ends in themselves not because they have reason, but because they have freedom. Reason is merely a means. Unquote. Could have lifted that line from Hume. Kant's idea is that the goal of morality is to act in accordance with the greatest use of freedom, or to achieve intra and interpersonal consistency in the exercise of freedom. And that rationality is valuable not for its own sake, but because it, as our capacity for acting in accordance with universal or universalizable principles, is what allows us to exercise our freedom in a in an uh, intra and interpersonally consistent way. Okay, so uh, down on freedom, while a passion for reason is on the face of it absurd, the idea of a passion for freedom is not obviously absurd. Indeed, again, in his anthropology lectures, Kant describes a passion for freedom as in many ways the most fundamental of all human passions. The inclination to freedom, he says, is the inclination to determine oneself in accordance with one's own inclination and to be independent from the inclination of others. The first thing that the human being demands, he says in uh, his lectures from 1784-85, or the greatest formal inclination and held to be the greatest good by everyone, he says in another version of that course uh, four years later. Now, to be sure, this inclination, or even passion for freedom, is an inclination for one's own freedom. He defined it as uh, an, inc an inclination to be free from the inclination of others. And to serve in any way in the realization of morality, this passion for freedom has to be transformed into something like a desire for the freedom of everyone. This is where reason comes in. For reason can teach us that our own freedom is no different and therefore no more important than the freedom of anyone and everyone else. This insight requires us to redirect our original passion for freedom 
transforming its object from one's own freedom now to one's own and everyone's freedom always. Sorry, that should have been transforming its object from one's own freedom now to one's own freedom and everyone's freedom always. And in so doing, it should transform the original passion for one's own freedom into something that is no longer a passion incompatible with reason, but into some other kind of feeling that is compatible with reason. My suggestion is that Kant's mature model of moral motivation, again, at least at the empirical level, is precisely that our own original impetus towards freedom must be retained while its application is expanded beyond our own present case. Kant's model of moral motivation thus shares fundamental features with Hume's, although his account refines both the elements of feeling and of freedom that we found in Hume. The accounts share the idea um, that we start off with uh, a passion. They share the idea that um, reason is in fact a means and not an end, um, but in the end the two conceptions of freedom uh, do differ in an interesting way. Okay. Um, Kant's idea that freedom is the end of morality and that reason merely pervades the entire development. Kant's idea is that freedom is the end of morality and that reason merely its, its means. Um, sorry. This idea pervades the entire development of his moral philosophy. Kant claims in his first published remarks about morality in the so-called prize essay of 1764 that the formal first principle of morality provided by reason must be accompanied by a material first principle that actually expresses the value that is to be achieved through the use of reason. So the means end uh, distinction is, is in a way already at work in that early essay. In that essay, Kant suggests that Francis Hutcheson was on the right path in suggesting that it is feeling that determines the good or the first mater material principle of morality. Uh, but of course, for Hutcheson, what the moral sense approves is uh, benevolent intentions. However, in notes written very shortly after this essay, Kant reveals his emerging view that freedom is the good or the material first principle of morality that must be accompanied with a formal first principle due to reason. Kant's emerging view can be seen as, uh, in a remark such as this. Since the greatest inner perfection and the perfection that arises from that consists in the subordination of all our capacities and receptivities to the free capacity for choice, the feeling for the goodness of the free capacity for choice must immediately be much different and also greater than all of the good consequences that can thereby be effected. Now this capacity for choice contains either the merely individual as well as the universal will, or it considers the person at the same time in consensu with the universal will." End of quote. That is, freedom is the material good, but since the formal principle of morality is universality, it is the freedom of all, not just of oneself, that is the object of morality. The challenge of moral motivation is then to get from the feeling for the goodness of one's own capacity for free choice to recognition of the universal goodness of free choice uh, but a recognition that retains the, for, the force of the former. We start from a psychological preference for freedom from our own excessive desires, which seems much like Hume's desire for tranquility, as well as from a hatred of domination by other people. Kant also says, nothing can open a grimmer prospect of misery and desperation to me 
than that my condition should lie not in my own will but in that of another. But we have to transform these personal preferences into a moral principle through the insight that, quote, all right action is a maximum of the free power of choice when it is taken uh, reciprocally, as Kant says in another note from the same period, without losing the vigor of those original preferences. This idea of universal freedom as the end of morality also dominates Kant's lectures on ethics in the 1770s. Here Kant says, for example, that, quote, moral goodness is the governance of our own choice by rules, whereby all acts of my choice concur with universal validity, unquote, and period. We might have expected him to say universal validity of something. But precisely because he does not, we have no way to fill in the missing term except as the universal validity of free choice itself. In other words, the fundamental requirement of morality is that all acts of my free choice concur with the universal possibility of free choice. Later in the lectures, in his discussion of duties to oneself, Kant states that, quote, the inner worth of the world, the summum bonum, is freedom according to a choice that is not necessitated to act. Freedom is thus the inner worth of the world, unquote. Now, he doesn't actually provide his teenage students, or for that matter, us, with an argument for this premise. But he does tell, it, tell us what follows from it. Namely, that, quote, the conditions under which alone the greatest use of freedom is possible and under which it can be self-consistent constitute the principium of all duties, unquote. Since he's discussing here duties to oneself, he goes on to detail the ways in which we each need to preserve rather than undermine our own continuing possibility of free choice, above all by developing what he calls self-mastery, the ability to regulate the, quote, rabble element unquote, of desires and inclinations that would otherwise dominate our behavior. He reasserts only at the end of his treatment of duties to others that freedom is the inner principium of the world without having made it clear in the interval how our particular, particular duties to others are actually duties to allow them the same degree of freedom that we are naturally inclined to claim for ourselves. But this is precisely what he does in a, such a mature publication as the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. Now this claim might seem surprising, because instead of starting from the premise that freedom is the inner worth of the world, the groundwork proposes to derive the content of the fundamental principle of morality from the common concepts of goodwill and duty, and from the philosophical concept of the categorical imperative itself. That is, the concept of the moral law in the form in which it, in which it presents itself to us imperfect human beings. From these concepts, con derives the first main formulation of the categorical imperative as the requirement to, quote, act only in accordance with that maxim through which you can at the same time will that it become a universal law. And the second, so act that you use humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, always at the same time as an end, never merely as a means. And neither of these formulations makes any explicit reference to freedom. However, the requirement to act only on universalizable maxims can be understood as the requirement to act only on maxims that could be freely adopted by everyone, not just yourself. And since Kant means by humanity the capacity to set oneself an end, any end whatsoever, the requirement to treat humanity as an end and never merely a, a means in everyone, not just yourself, can be understood as the requirement to allow everyone the same freedom to determine their own ends that you naturally claim for yourself. 
Both of these formulations of the categorical imperative can thus be understood as variations of the fundamental principle of morality to allow everyone the same freedom of choice that you claim for yourself. Now, that the fundamental goal of morality is the universalization of the freedom to set, and I would add effectively pursue, um, ends uh, as the freedom that everyone naturally claims for him or herself can also be seen from Kant's examples of duties following these two main formulations of the categorical imperative. Kant's avowed purpose in these illustrations is to confirm his interpretation of the categorical imperative by showing that it gives rise to the, com to the commonly recognized division of duties into perfect and imperfect duties to self and others. But in fact, his examples also suggest a lexically ordered series of duties to preserve the capacity to exercise free choice and to promote the conditions for the effective use of free choice. Kant's first example, namely the prohibition of suicide, is a duty to preserve the existence of a free being, in, in this case oneself, and thereby to preserve its capacity for free choice. His second example, the prohibition of false promises, is a duty to preserve the same possibility of the exercise of free choice by another on a particular occasion that one would claim for oneself by not denying to the other truthful information about your own intentions. Kant's third example, the duty to cultivate one's talents, is a duty to put yourself into a position for the effective pursuit of your own freely chosen ends. And finally, the duty to assist others is a duty to assist, uh, is a duty to further their freely chosen ends, just because they are freely chosen ends, when doing so is consistent, of course, with the other duties regarding freedom that have been enumerated. Collectively, Kant's categories of duty comprise the overarching duty to preserve freedom of choice and to promote the conditions for its effective use. These two things together comprising what he calls the greatest possible use of freedom. So Kant, like Hume, construes the goal of morality as freedom, although in the end, not just the negative freedom from importunate desires that Hume emphasizes, but the positive freedom to set ends. I now want to turn to the second and perhaps more controversial part of my argument, namely that Kant supposes that to act morally is actually to refine an initial passion for one's own freedom into a positive feeling for the freedom of all. In the groundwork, Kant states that, quote, since an action from duty is to put aside entirely the influence of inclination, there is left nothing for the will that could determine it except objectively the moral law and subjectively pure respect for this practical law. And as already mentioned, he describes respect as a feeling self-wrought by means of a rational concept. In fact, the feeling of respect in this initial account seems to be uh, epiphenomenal. That is, simply our consciousness of being motivated solely by the moral law at the noumenal level, where the choice of principles really takes place. In the, choice of, in the critique of practical reason, Kant complicates this simple uh, and in some ways incredible picture. He again asserts that, quote, what is essential to any moral worth of actions is that the moral law determine the will immediately, unquote, thus suggesting, the, suggesting that the determination of the will by the moral law must itself be the cause of anything else involved in moral motivation, including any conscious feeling of respect. 
But he now elaborates a more complicated phenomenology of the feeling of respect, suggesting that it intervenes between the immediate determination of the will by the moral law and the actual performance or attempted performance of a morally mandated action. He states here that, quote, the moral law, as the determining ground of the will, must, by thwarting all our inclinations, pr produce a feeling that can be called pain, but also produce a positive feeling. And he claims that by these means, quote, the moral law deprives self-love of its influence, and thereby the hindrance to pure practical reason is lessened, and the representation of the superiority of its objective law to the impulses of sensibility is produced, unquote. The idea seems to be that the determination of the will by the moral law actually leads to action by reweighting our natural incentives or inclinations. It makes the naturally pleasurable prospect of indulging our own inclinations without regard to others somewhat painful. And it transforms the naturally painful prospect of thwarting our own inclinations into the pleasurable prospect of living up to the moral law. And the idea seems to be that this realignment of our prospects for pleasure and pain is what leads to our dutiful action. Here it looks as if the Kantian moment of the determination of the will by pure reason has to pass through a Humean mechanism of the motivation of action by prospects of pleasure and pain. Now, on the uh, transcendental idealist theory of the freedom of the will that Kant had presented as at least possible in the critique of pure reason and had asserted in the third section of the groundwork, the determination of the will by the moral law would take place at what he calls the noumenal level, the level of us as we are in ourselves, as contrasted to how we appear to ourselves. And it would manifest itself to consciousness, that is to our empirical selves, in whatever moral reasoning and decision-making we consciously engage in, but also in these modifications of our natural propensities to feelings of pleasure and pain. That might seem a little bit surprising. The noumenal choice is supposed to be a purely rational choice, but it's going to manifest itself at the level of appearance, the level we actually know about, both in rational thoughts and inferences, but also in the modification of our feelings. But I think that's not a problem, since Kant explicitly asserts in the Critique of Practical Reason that, quote, every determination of our existence, changing conformably with inner sense, even the whole sequence of our existence as a sensible being, unquote, is the product of this supposed noumenal choice, and there's no need for him to restrict the effects of the supposedly purely rational noumenal choice to reason or reasoning as an empirical phenomenon, which is contrasted to feeling. Uh, the idea is that everything that happens at the empirical level is supposed to be a consequence of this choice, so that includes the modification of feelings. However, at the same time, the inscrutability of the relation between noumenal choice and its phenomenal, phenomenal consequences also means that the former gives us no information about the latter. So Kant, in fact, must be relying entirely on empirical data for his theory of the phenomenal character of moral motivation. Maybe transcendental idealism can remain in place as a background guarantee that every human being is always free to choose to do the right thing. I mean, if you think there could be such a guarantee. But it plays no further role in the development of Kant's model of the phenomenology of, of moral motivation or his empirical theory of moral motivation. Instead, what Kant offers us in his last published work in moral philosophy, The Metaphysics of Morals, 
is a considerable refinement of the theory of moral feelings that had been suggested in the critique of practical reason. On this refined theory, we are not moved to action by a single, even if complex feeling of respect that is produced by reasoning about the moral law. We are instead moved to perform the particular actions called for by morality, in particular circumstances, by a panoply of feelings, or more precisely what Kant calls aesthetic preconditions that are both cultivated, that is strengthened, and also conditioned, that is constrained when necessary, by our conscious reflection on the moral law and what it requires of us. In the introduction to the doctrine of virtue of this last great work of his, Kant enumerates four, quote, aesthetic and antecedent but natural predispositions of the mind for being affected by concepts of duty. Tendencies, he also calls them, that we have to possess naturally in order to be able to be moved to action by concepts of duty, but that must also be strengthened and guided by our thought about duty. These uh, four aesthetic preconditions are first, moral feeling, a general, quote, susceptibility to feel pleasure or displeasure merely from being aware that our actions are consistent with or contrary to the law of duty, unquote, which seems to play the role of what Kant had earlier called the feeling of respect. Secondly, conscience, which is not so much a feeling but a propensity in, in the real in our real empirical experience, to hold particular actions that suggest themselves to us up to the moral law for acquittal or condemnation. Thirdly, love of other human beings, a feeling of pleasure in the idea of doing good to them. And fourthly, respect, now in the particular sense of self-esteem, a quote, feeling which is of, of a special kind that is the basis of certain actions that are consistent with one's duty to himself, unquote. Our obligation is to cultivate each of these feelings or propensities so that it will be strong enough to move us to action when needed. In the case of conscience, for example, our duty quote is to cultivate one's conscience, to sharpen one's attentiveness to the voice of the inner judge, and to use every means to obtain a hearing for it, unquote, and something similar holds for the others. It's important to recognize that the cultivation of these propensities is not merely a backup in case the sheer determination of the will by the moral law should happen to fail us. Even if the idea of the determination of the will by the moral law alone at the noumenal level makes any sense, being moved by ac to action by these feelings once they have been adequately cultivated is the way that the determination of the will by the moral law actually moves us to action at the phenomenal level. This, I think, is Kant's ultimate accommodation of Hume and the other moral sense theorists. Uh, there's a passage in his lectures early on where he says we have to distinguish between the principle of moral adjudication and the principle of moral motivation. And he says the moral sense theorists don't have it right about the principle of moral adjudication, what the actual criterion for right and wrong is. That can't come from feeling itself. But they had it 100% right about moral motivation. That has to be a matter of feeling. But as he's tried to lay out, feelings cultivated and strengthened um, in light of our overarching commitment to the moral law. In a further rapprochement with his Scottish rivals, Kant 
adds or perhaps further specifies the feeling of love towards others as, quote, sympathetic joy and sadness, sensible feelings of pleasure or displeasure, which are therefore to be called aesthetic at another's state of joy or pain. Nature, he continues, has already implanted in human beings receptivity to these feelings as a means to promoting active and rational benevolence, that is, actual performance of beneficent actions. He reiterates in this later discussion that we have a duty to cultivate these compassionate, natural, aesthetic feelings so that we can reliably make use of them as so many means to sympathy based on moral principles. But as the last clause, as well as his further statement that to use sympathy, quote, as a means to promoting active and rational benevolence is still a particular, though only a conditional duty, unquote, imply, our duty is not only to cultivate these natural propensities in the name of or out of respect for the moral law so that they will be able to move us to particular actions when we need them to do so, we must always make action upon them conditional with their compliance with the moral law. That is, watch out that the actions that they would move us to are in fact morally correct. After all, sometimes love or sympathy or self-esteem could prompt us to do something we ought not to do. In a famous example from Barbara Herman, our natural and well-cultivated sympathy might move us to want to help someone struggling to move a heavy package out of the back door of a museum late at night, <laughs> when in fact what we should be doing, of course, is calling the police because the person is trying to steal some valuable work of art. But the point remains that the normal way for us to make the moral law effective in our lives is by cultivating our natural receptivity to concepts of duty, but also making sure that the actions to which our cultivated propensities impel us are in fact the ones that duty demands, which we make sure of at least in part by further cultivating this aesthetic propensity of conscience. Now, okay, how does all this bear, I'm approaching the end here, how does all this bear on my original claim that Kant grounds the possibility of morality on a passion for one's own freedom that must be refined into a sentiment in behalf of the freedom of all without losing its original impetus? First, Recall that in his courses on anthropology, Kant reported that every human being displays a passion for his or her own freedom. Already, he says, present in the baby's loud cries. Cry, uh, human babies cry unlike all other animals simply because uh, a human baby regards its inability to make use of its limbs as a constraint, and thus it immediately announces its claims to freedom." Unquote. This passion, as we saw, is fundamental in the sense that it underlies all more particular desires and passions, that it, as we want to satisfy our particular desires, desires, but above all because they are our own. And if the inclination for freedom, quote, cannot be satisfied, then neither can any of our other desires, unquote. Now this primeval passion, again, is entirely self-regarding. But along with this passion, reason is also natural to human beings and naturally develops as they mature, and as, quote, reason gradually develops, instinct loses its, its domination, although instinct remains in place while reason receives more power over it, Kant says. In other words, the passion for freedom is not simply replaced by reason, but is rather, rather becomes governed by reason. Since reason teaches us that we're not significantly different from each other, 
reason taught Descartes, for example, that we're all similar in intelligence, or Hobbes, that we're all pretty similar in strength. So uh, for Kant, it teaches us that the freedom of, every, of any one of us is worth neither more nor less than the freedom of any other. As this insight sinks in during the process of maturation, the impetus originally attached to the idea of our own freedom should be transferred, for most people, comes to be transferred to the idea of the freedom of all. And the, quote, inclination to persist in our own outer freedom should become transformed into an affect, which is called enthusiasm, for the concept of freedom under moral laws, that is, for self-consistent freedom, for the greatest use of freedom, or for the maximum of freedom for both oneself and others without losing its original motivational force. Our original passion for freedom needs to be, and at least according to Kant, is gradually corrected by reason, but without that passion, now transformed into a positive enthusiasm, we could not act in behalf of the freedom of all. I might mention here, so I said at the outset that Kant is not comfortable in using the term passion to describe this refined sentiment for the freedom of all because by definition, for him, passion is a feeling that interferes with the operation of reason. So here he chooses, now that the feeling has been refined, he needs a positive term rather than a pejorative term for it. He chooses the word enthusiasm. That's uh, perhaps a surprising word for him to choose. Uh, because that in 18th century discourse often also has a very negative connotation of meaning, uh, once again, precisely a feeling governed, not governed by reason. Um, but sometimes, as in some occasions in Shaftesbury, for example, um, as contrasted to Locke, for example, um, the word enthusiasm, ha enthusiasm has a positive sense as well, meaning, roughly speaking, like a strong feeling directed in the right direction. And, it's that sense of enthusiasm that Kant is helping himself to hear. Okay, conclusion. I find Kant's theory that we have a nominally free will that always allows us to do the right thing no matter what our inclinations might be, a fairy tale. But I find his empirical theory that we come to be able to act morally only by refining and cultivating our native inclination towards our own freedom quite plausible. To be sure, precisely insofar as it is empirical, this theory offers no guarantee that everyone will redirect their passion toward their own freedom, toward the freedom of all. And some people do not seem to do so. But at least this theory gives us a starting point for moral education, which Kant's theory of the nominally free will hardly does. I'll take that over a meaningless guarantee of free will any day, and I bet Hume would have too. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for a very interesting and stimulating uh, paper. We have about um, 20 minutes or so for uh, questions or comments. Uh, sort of anyone would like to ask a question? Yes? Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Um, I'm very interested in what you had to say about um, Kant grounding the possibility of freedom on passion, uh, on the grounding the possibility of freedom on the passion for freedom, and how that claim interacts with other with assertions er elsewhere as to the spontaneity of the human subject. Kant seems to want to say at different points that um, 
that the human person is, uh, is free to create causal sequences from itself. It's, it's free in relation to the objects of volition. So how do we, under, how do we position um, this passion for freedom in relation to that? Is this just the phenomenal manifestation of our subject, of our spontaneity? And if it isn't, if it's something else, then what kind of ground is actually spontaneity for our, for our freedom? Right. Thank you. Uh, I mean, thank you for the kind words and thank you for the question. Um, spontaneity and the idea of being able to uh, initiate uh, a sequence of actions that is, roughly speaking, the idea of being able to be a cause of a sequence of events without it being the effect of an antecedent sequence of events, that's all, those are all concepts that Kant uh, applies to the determination of action at the noumenal level, um, I think. So if one wants to you know, accept that story, then one could regard this whole story as precisely as what the um, empirical manifestation of spontaneity turns out to be like. Um, turns at the empirical level, it looks like what the spontaneous determination of our will by the moral law is getting us to do is to work with the feelings that we seem to have independently uh, and uh, redirect them and uh, strengthen some and weaken others and so on so that our, they, in, in the end, prompt us to the morally requisite actions. Um, now, I should... Uh, I mean, that, that's basically the answer to the question. I think um, Kant himself often has a great deal of difficulty in keeping the, um, the two levels of his theory uh, straight. And I think um, you know, the absolute classic example of that is uh, in the third section of the groundwork, where he first introduces this idea that we have to be able to think of ourselves as we think of every other object at two levels, how we appear and how we really are. Then we, when we think of ourselves as we really are, we are forced, forced to think of ourselves as uh, free and rational. That, that argument actually turns on the concept of spontaneity. Um, basically, his idea is that insofar as we think of ourselves as things in the in ourselves, the first idea we'll have is of spontaneity, and then the idea of uh, being f free in accordance with reason is roughly how we flesh that idea of spontaneity out. No sooner has he introduced that than, that's pages 451 to 453 of the groundwork for anyone who wants to check in standard, standard German pagination. No sooner has he introduced that than he immediately starts speaking of a conflict between pure reason and our feelings. And that's something that makes sense only at the empirical level. Uh, because if, as he says then in the critique of practical reason, our noumenal choice or intelligible character is the ground of our entire phenomenal character, there couldn't possibly be a conflict between the demands of reason on the one hand and the demands of feeling on the other hand. If we made the choice to be moral at the noumenal level, then our entire phenomenal character would play that out and there would be no real conflict. Um, so he, has a extreme, he himself has an extremely difficult time managing the, these, 
the story with two levels in it. Uh, but the basic point is, is that if you take that, that story seriously, and you think there is such a thing as this noumenal choice to, to maximize the freedom of all by following the moral law, et cetera, then one has to think the way that manifests itself in our actual experience is through this process of considerations of reason molding our, um, our, our earliest feelings. Um, and if you don't buy the noumenal story, you don't buy the two-level story, well, then you just have the story about considerations of reason gradually uh, refining and redirecting our original impulse to our own freedom uh, without, the back, without the back story. Thanks. You need to prepare philosophy? Thanks. I have two small, perhaps, historical questions. One has to do with the... Uh, um, use of the ancient references when you mentioned the concept of tranquility as used mm -hmm. by David Hume. You mentioned Epicurean and Stoic theories. They're actually quite different uh, concepts, right? So, so yeah. the Epicurean the theories, the actual tranquility to the Stoic is probably much less central to the Stoic model theory and it's more like the theory of lack of passion. But yes. I was wondering rather, because Hume is a skeptic, everyone knows, the, mm, to what extent might his concept of tranquility be informed by that of the skeptical tradition, where, um, quite surprisingly, it's also a telos. It's, it's also I'm sorry, a, I didn't hear the last well, bit. Uh, so, is this, is this what? Yes. Okay. Is this, I just didn't hear the last bit. So, the, you know, reference was, to ancient skepticism and yeah, then... I was wondering, to what extent um, the, mm, the Hume's uh, concept of tranquility might be informed by the um, concept of tranquility used by Pironian skeptics, because the academic skeptics don't seem to. Uh, the tradition towards which he actually shows his affiliation right. uh, explicitly uh, don't seem to have the sort of, at least it's rather questionable whether the, the moral views are sort of Right. But um, well, okay, so the, uh, the whole question yeah. was, I, um, if I, and correct me if I get it wrong, but the whole question was basically, uh, I alluded to ancient sources for uh, Hume's conception of the virtue of tranquility, and I, and I suggested that you could open up any Epicurean or Stoic text and find some reference uh, to that. Uh, and the question was really a two-part question. Um, the first part was um, that Epicureanism and Stoicism are not exactly the same on this point of view, and isn't uh, Hume's conception more Epicurean than Stoic? And the second part was, what about the ancient skeptics? And since Hume himself is a self-styled skeptic, uh, couldn't there be um, a source in ancient skepticism um, for um, Hume's conception of tranquility, although it would have to lie in the academic rather than Peronian tradition, right? Ostensibly. Yeah, okay. But, 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 well, ostensibly it would have to be an academic concept of some sort, except that the academics don't seem to have a suitable concept for Hume. And the concept which may be available is the one that's, that we find in the Pironian tradition. Right, but right. So all I'm, all I'm going to say is now, I'm going to plead that, you know, I'm a modernist and not an uh, ancient expert. Uh, I think it's absolutely right that there are fundamental differences between Epicureanism and Stoicism on this point. Um, and uh, although 
at least from my reading such as it is, to some extent it seems to be a difference more in the amount of theory that leads up to the idea of uh, tranquility or apatheia rather than in the concept itself. Um, I mean, the, that is the Stoic, the Epicurean, the idea is that, I mean, yeah, the common uh, picture of Epicureanism, of course, is that life should be the pursuit of pleasure, but the idea is that, uh, but the actual Epicurean idea is that the best way to secure self-pleasure is precisely by liberating yourself from all kinds of desires that you can't readily fulfill, importunate desires. Um, that notion um, is uh, very strongly taken up in the early modern period. Uh, we see it in, um, uh, in Hume, clearly. Uh, we see it in many, many early uh, remarks of Kant's, notes from the 1760s especially, uh, and we see it in some ways in Rousseau uh, at roughly the same time, and that's an influence on Kant too. Um, in Stoicism, there's this much grander conception of living in accordance with nature, uh, where a whole metaphysics of nature is presupposed, and one is uh, supposed to take one's proper place in that order and, in a sense, you know, fulfill one's destined role, not disturb the order, and so on and so forth. That's an idea that's also very strong in early modern philosophy. It's profoundly influential in Shaftesbury, for example. Um, of course, the lines all crisscross each other, right, because Shaftesbury is, uh, the, is the second generation Cambridge Platonist, but there's this very strong Stoic element in him, too. But at some superficial level, at least, what the Stoic achieves by um, uh, living in accordance with nature is uh, a smooth path of life free from disturbances of, uh, of importunate uh, feelings and desires, at least among other things. So I think at that level, Stoicism and Epicureanism are, from the modern point of view, closely related. And 18th century people, I don't know, would necessarily draw a deep distinction between them. Uh, I mean, Kant himself, at some periods, uh, greatly admires Stoicism. He says the only, the only thing that the Stoics got wrong, uh, well, they got two things wrong. I mean, they got the idea, the idea of a Stoic sage, the idea that any human being could actually achieve uh, the ideal of a Stoic sage. That was a mistake, because for Kant, only a holy will could achieve that, not a mere mortal human will, which always has inclinations that push against morality, even when the human being fully controls them. Uh, that's one thing the Stoics got wrong. Well, whether the Stoics really got that wrong, it's another question. Um, and the other thing that the Stoics got wrong is that they thought that the connection between virtue and happiness was analytic, that to be happy just was to be virtuous, whereas for Kant, these were two different notions, although in an ideal world, a fully virtuous person should also be happy, but more importantly, in an ideal world, if everyone were virtuous, then everyone would be happy. Um, so, oh, so that's kind of a long-winded answer, and it ends up more with Kant than with Hume on the first point. Um, I mean, I guess uh, as far as Hume goes, purely historically, uh, and I'll see what others think, but I think it would be safer to think that Hume was much more influenced uh, by Epicurean uh, thinking than by Stoic thinking, but others didn't draw a clear distinction between them and were equally influenced by both. On the second uh, question, there I'll be, I won't be so long-winded because I certainly don't have very much to say. Um, but uh, the only thing I will say is that, um, I mean, Hume himself certainly does, uh, I mean, he uh, exploits 
figures from both academic and Peronian skepticism. So he likes especially um, in the, well, in, in the discussion of skepticism in, at the end of book one of the treatise, uh, or I, is that this, what I'm thinking of, the sort of penultimate chapter of part four, book one. Um, he, you know, he goes through this sort of long thing about what kind of skeptic he is, and in some ways he wants to say, I'm an academic skeptic in the sense that these are intellectual questions. Well, I mean, Hume associates his whole stance that these skeptical questions plague me when I'm in my study, but as soon as I leave my study and go for a walk or play billiards with my friends, they lose their force for me. He associates that psychological stance, I think, with academic skepticism. But at the same time, he, he explicitly appeals to Peronian skepticism, the idea of pitting, um, pitting theories that seem equally well-grounded against each other, which Kant will then take up into, the, into his antinomies. Um, so he, uh, he you know, is cognizant of both of those traditions. And then, I guess, the thing I should really say is that when it comes to moral philosophy, Hume doesn't make a big deal out of skepticism at all. I mean, he makes a big deal of the fact that moral principles are grounded in sentiment rather than reason. But that's not a form of skepticism as far as he's concerned. Um, they're well grounded in sentiment. And that's, if anything, that's like empirical knowledge. That is the moral analog of the kind of empirical knowledge that ultimately he's content with when he um, uh, concludes that causal principles are grounded in experience rather than reason narrowly defined. Thanks. I think we've got time for one more question. If anyone, I must be being very long-winded then. First of all, thank you so much for a wonderful presentation. Um, you've argued that, um, well, in, in Kant, you've argued that um, in Kant there could be a transition from an original passion for our own freedom to, um, well, an enthusiasm for the freedom of all, and you've said that this transition has to be refined by reason. Um, but could you also say that um, at an anthropological, uh, empirical level, that you can also make use of Kant's notion of common human understanding, and especially uh, the maxim of the broad-minded mode of thought, which is to think in the position of everyone else. And it appears, right. it appears in the third critique, and people uh, often related to the uh, census communis, and especially the census communis aestheticus, so they relate it or they interpret it in the framework of Kant's aesthetics. But if you have a close look at the lectures on anthropology, you mm -hmm. see that it also has right. a very down-to-earth, so to speak, anthropological uh, side. Right. So that right. it's not, not merely about transcendental communicability, um, but also about really trying to, to position yourself in the position of everyone else by means of engaging in debate and, and, and so right. on. Right, absolutely. Um, So uh, Kant actually enumerates three principles of sound, common understanding, think consistently, think from the point of view of everyone else, 
and the third one is escaping me right at the moment. What's the third one? Think for oneself, right, of course. Um, yeah, um, so when he does that, he's, uh, he, he's not using understanding in a technical sense as contrasted to reason, I think. Um, I mean, just as Hume, uh, uh, when he starts talking about the role of reason in moral considerations, doesn't use reason in, his, in the technical sense in which he had used it earlier, but in a broader sense, so too, I think, in this kind of passage, uh, Kant is talking about uh, understanding quite broadly, um, which is going to include reason. I mean, I think uh, it has to include reason, uh, particularly because for Kant, uh, the, the, the requirement of, well, thinking consistently, I mean, think for oneself, that's not well-defined, thinking consistently, that requires reason, thinking, uh, and, and thinking from the standpoint of others, that also requires reason, because his view on this um, is different, let's say, than Smith's, Adam Smith's, bring another Edinburgh figure in, right, or Glasgow and Edinburgh figure. I mean, Smith thinks we essentially do moral reasoning by putting ourselves into the shoes of others, seeing how we would feel were we in that situation, and that, th that moral rules are then simply generalizations of the results that we get from this imaginative exercise. For Kant, it's, it's you know, at least in his official theory, it's the other way around, I think. That is, the way we get to, the way we put ourselves in the shoes of others is by thinking uh, in terms of universal principles. I mean, when we, when we uh, consider whether a maxim that we're proposing acting on is universalizable, we are in effect, of course, asking, um, you know, how would we feel if others acted on that maxim? How would others feel if we actually acted on that maxim? But we get there through this concept of universalizability. So I think um, reason has got to be involved in this common uh, human understanding, and that they're not really separate concepts for Kant. When he wants to, you know, of course, in a critique of pure reason, he separates understanding and reason. When he talks about understanding as the source of categories and reason as the source of pure ideas, which are essentially uh, the categories carried to an extreme in, in a way. Uh, in moral writings, of course, when he talks about pure reason, there that's also a distinctive. Uh, faculty, that's the source of the, um, well, of the idea of universalizability and of the idea that, you know, universalizability is, uh, is imperative for us and so on. Um, but then I think, At least I, when I was then talking about uh, refining these feelings in light of reason, I'm using reason broadly. I guess, I mean, I should also confess that at that point, at least, I'm putting the word in Kant's mouth. Because in, in the section of the introduction to the doctrine of virtue of the metaphysics of morals that I'm drawing on, section 12 of the introduction to the doctrine of virtue, that anyone wants to see it, can't, I don't, he doesn't actually explicitly talk about reason. He talks about the moral law and how we, you know, these various aesthetic preconditions 
well, make us susceptible to the concept of duty or to the moral law. We just have to presuppose that that comes from reason. Um, so he's not explicitly talking about, he's not explicitly using the word reason there, I'm using the word there, and I'm using it in a broad sense rather than a narrow sense. So in other words, I agree with you. <laughs> okay, that's great. I think on that note, we should thank our speaker again. Thank you. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.